What's going on, everybody? E- this is SecDevOps.ai. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. Here we go. We have a very special guest with us today. Who is this? Nalima, would you do the honors of introducing yourself? I am truly honored to have you on the show. Um, and we'll get into your background, but I would love for you to go ahead and intro yourself. Thank you, guys. First of all, thank you for inviting me here. Uh, I've been following your channel for some oh, time. Thank you. So thank uh, I'm so happy to be here. Um, my name is Nilima. I run the products team for a company called Amisto and um, now part of Palo Alto Networks. And we're going to talk product and security today. Nice. Yes. Mm-hmm. Nalima has a very decorated background working at some startups, bringing them to acquisition to be acquired. And uh, you have quite an extensive security background working at companies like McAfee, Symantec, and now Palo Alto Networks. What a resume. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. Uh, So a lot of experience in endpoint security and now security automation space. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. So with these acquisitions, were you instrumental in the acquisition or were you just sort of helping along, kind of facilitating? Um, I would say I would helping and facilitating along. Okay, nice. Yeah. Was it scary at times? It was a lot of pressure? Um, so uh, the first startup, I was more of an engineer, okay. right? So started as an engineer, so not was not that close uh, to the process um, as much. Uh, second time, it was very exciting, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, Demisto started around 2015, and I joined in 2016. Mm-hmm. And since then, I think we were on a roll, um, right. which is a very, very different experience from my first startup. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we were taking things as they were coming. So, it was all a new experience, and um, nothing was scarier. Um, I would also attribute it a lot to our founders. Mm. Um, we had great culture, and Ron can attribute to that, right? Yes. A very, very transparent. And when you're transparent, and uh, you know everyone knows where you're going, and it's aligned, right? You are in it together. Yep. And as soon as that happens. Um, things are not scarier. It's just fun. It's just yeah. another thing to conquer. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. That's, right? that's the way it always should be, but I'm sure it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that, you know, when you have a great team culture and everyone is kind of uh, in that uh, very, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, well, like a flow state. Flow, yeah. Yeah, like a flow um, state. But either, either way, um, I wanted to kind of have a little bit of time for you to talk about your upbringing in security and how you got in the space in the first place. Yeah. So uh, it happened by accident, right? So when I basically I did my master's from India in computer applications, and um, I'm, I'm, I was always a coder. Um, and uh, in my first job, I kind of um, interviewed at a company called Solid Core, which was which was our first startup, mm. um, and just landed there. Right from there on, um, what Solid Core was trying to figure out at that point of time is how we are going to actually have anything in a Windows environment or solution in Windows environment, and also what would that product look like. Um, as part of that first. Uh, experiment, the first two years, I just learned a lot about Windows kernel kernel development, 
uh, which was not my background. Right. Um, and uh, from the start, I've been very, very systematic. So what happened was I kind of ended up looking after the code as well as starting managing the processes as well because the the headquarters was in US but all the engineering was in India. Mm. Um, slowly um, I kind of because you are in the kernel space there are two or three things that can happen you can either end up in security space mm -hmm. or you can end up in backup space um, so from a product perspective at that time I didn't understand that much and we eventually as a company ended up in risk and compliance and security space. Mm. Um, those seven uh, to eight years were very well spent because I understood the whole stack by the time I came out. And I also understood that I really, really liked security space because it, you are solving a problem uh, of education, you're educating people, you're actually helping them protect, right? Um, stuff like that and what also happened at that time about five to six years into that journey was uh, that I got an opportunity to start the customer success team there uh -huh. um, that was my first or second so I always loved talking right. um, and uh, connecting with customers yeah. but in the engineering team capacity at that time you did not really get exposed that much Mm -hmm. When I started setting up the customer success team, I was talking to customers day in, day out. And mm -hmm. then I realized what a difference it can make after talking to customers to what you can roll into the product, right? Um, and that was my transition that in, in my next 10 years, I want to be at a place where I'm talking to customers day in, day out and right. actually rolling it back into the product, which kind of squarely took me into the PM um, space. Right. Um, so long story short, got an option to work on the PM side, and then in a year or so, uh, got an option to move to headquarters, mm -hmm. which is where I think when you are close to headquarters as a product person, you have so much opportunity to really, really make a difference in the product. And that's how my journey started. Now in all this, I never considered myself being a woman insecurity right, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, in the tech I think it kind of flattens out uh, from a women's perspective mm -hmm. but sometimes when you start taking responsibility it's not the same in everyone's eyes right right um, so it's very interesting I got a chance to run the customer success team because at that point of time I was in the family way and that was thought to be a more lenient way of uh, kind of handling this work-life balance mm -hmm. um, than being in pure engineering, right? Interesting. Yeah. And I completely changed it around, right? right. Uh, great team, set up the whole team, mm -hmm. because ultimately if you're working as a woman or a man, it doesn't make a difference. You want to make a difference and you get want to get things done. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, so that was my first experience of understanding um, what it, how it's different for women and men, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this is why I think my empathy radar is super high because when you have been in situations where you are the outsider, you suddenly start seeing other people's point of view from exactly the same point of view, mm -hmm. right? right. Um, and uh, so that kind of is the, and I, I'll talk a little bit about 
what it means to be a PM mm-hmm. and why empathy plays such a big role. But that was, I think, my first foray uh, into that difference. And I've been following that space a lot because I, I really believe you should take your people along. Absolutely. Um, and especially help women where you can, right? Yep. So um, this is why I, I focus a lot. I, in, in LinkedIn also, I help a lot of PMs kind of who want to do the switch. Um, and some so many times they are exactly in the same situation. Right. Mm-hmm. It's funny because we were just at DevColor uh, this weekend, Ron and I. I mm-hmm. actually had the opportunity to speak uh, yesterday. And there were tons of developers and engineers that were looking to make the transition to security. Hmm. What is one thing that you would want to convey to everybody trying to make that transition? Yeah. So I what I would say is security is hard work. There is no taking away from the domain expertise. Mm-hmm. So whether you're a guy or a gal, you need to know your stuff, right? And there is no getting away from that. So right. first, definitely know the basics because in security, anyone can peel out the layers of onions so fast, yep. you won't know what hit you, right? right? So true. Um, right? And once you have done that, what I really ask my PMs and anyone who wants to become a PM has to kind of from a security perspective is play with a lot of security products. Yep. Um, see what problems they are solving. What is happening in your life from a security perspective? So there are things you can read, but there are a lot of things you have to experience yep. to actually empathize, right? right? And once those two kind of match, then you have enough expertise to basically start rising up in the security ladder. Right. So you would err on the side of over POC, POV, different products yeah. rather than underdo it. Yes. Okay. And of course, sometimes studying, like, of course, studying. So I didn't do any cybersecurity education specifically, mm-hmm. but it's all hands-on all experience. All on the job? All on the job. Wow. Totally. Right. Um, so if you put in enough time and there is interest, there is so much out there to learn, provided you are ready to get your hands dirty. If not, then obviously cybersecurity uh, masters, etc., also help because uh, just last year we worked with uh, Carnegie Mellon um, students, right? Right, and uh, some of them we have also hired. A great course. They come with really good background, so it's a it's a very good way to start into it. Um, from a security perspective. Wow, it's amazing. Yeah, on-the-job training, uh, learning is uh, completely different than kind of formal education or going to a university. Right. You know, you were talking about climbing the ladder and kind of being more empathetic with someone from their point of view. Uh, What have you seen from your point of view as a woman kind of climbing the ladder, uh, transitioning from engineer to now PM? Yeah. A um, lot of things, right? First of all, you definitely need to have sponsors in mm. your life, right? Um, and that's true for men and women right. together. Um, for women, I think it's 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 very important. It's extra important to find sponsors, just not supporters, right? And uh, honestly, I've been very, very lucky in that uh, respect. My first 
uh, PM, and I'm going to call out names here. Saroop, yeah, Saroop Sairam, right? He basically pulled me on the PM side. He spent a lot of time mentoring me, um, basically, for, for the first year of my life as a PM. Very nice. Um, and uh, that kind of, and then he kind of let me go, and he said, you know, go run with it, right? So giving uh, independence to actually run your product, have the confidence in it, feel the heat uh, for it as well, that comes with great managers, right? So um, I think that made a lot of difference for me. Also, uh, McAfee's product culture from a PM culture perspective was great, right? PMs were responsible for enabling sales no matter what, right? The buck stopped there. And um, if the product could, took a beating, it was PM's responsibility. So there's a lot of responsibility coming in mm -hmm. from that perspective. And whether you are a man or a woman, doesn't matter. You have to kind of um, deliver on it. So in, in that sense, my sponsors kind of really helped, enabled to start from there. Now, once you've done that, uh, climbing the ladder does become very interesting because um, everyone wants kind of a piece of the pie, mm -hmm. right? Um, and at that, at a certain point of time, you start basically, you come to a point where you're delivering extreme amount of value to kind of start going over the ladder. And that is where it's up to you as a woman or a man to kind of figure out after you've had the sponsors how you're providing that. Um, what I would say for me um, is that I've never considered myself a man or a woman, um, but um, I've worked extra hard, sometimes mm -hmm. much more than my peers, mm. right. to prove my uh, worth. Yes. And it may be me, uh, but I've seen all kind of people rise with me, depending on how much work they have put in, but I think I put extra work to right. get there. Uh, one of the concepts that we heard about this past weekend uh, was from Mecca about gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. Basically, people that did the opposite of what you're talking about now. These are people with false sense of authority actually blocking people, sort of saying, halt, who goes there? Mm -hmm. I'll allow you if you're a part of my crew, but if not, I'm going to block you. Have you encountered some of this? I mean, you don't have to go into names or anything like that, yeah. but have yeah. you encountered it, and how did you handle those situations? So... Um in in any organization, you you kind of uh, encounter this, right. um, and uh, the way you kind of ha handle this is you land in a in you work with good teams. You have to recognize uh, where you have to land mm -hmm. so that you will get that same kind of sponsorship at various levels, right? right? Um, and um, Believe it or not, as as a woman, you do have to uh, handle both sides of the world, work and life, right? So uh, having great multitasking capabilities really, really help you, yep. right? Um, again, no one is born with these capabilities. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that. You have to constantly work, about, work on it. Um, um, but to answer your question, uh, Chris, I think the best way to solve this is to land at a place where you know the people sometimes or you're just lucky to land there right um, but then again when you as you uh, rise up you consciously s try to work in companies which has a uh, great culture inclusivity is there um, it just it's just all good air around right and 
if you see that it's not a place where you will not grow uh, it's very important to cut your roots and mm-hmm. move on as well right, right? which uh, which a lot of us don't do it's great yeah right? uh, you have only these many years of life where you're going to work yeah and going to make a difference for yourself and for others so plan it backwards rather right. than forward absolutely that's great mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, really important. And I think that kind of reminds me of almost feeling like having glass ceilings, right? You know, maybe you're not working around people that are advocating for you or uh, pushing you to that next level. Uh, So what are some things that you guys do to deal with uh, gatekeeper? Well, you already said gatekeepers, but like the other perceptual glass ceilings. You know, what's funny is because what she said is exactly how I've lived my life and done my career. I've always been in situations where I felt limited by people. They would never just let the chains off and just let me be free and kind of do what I think is best until I got to Netflix. Mm -hmm. When I got to Netflix, they were just like, this is your program. This is your career. Do what you need to do as long as it's in the best interest of Netflix. And it's been... So eye-opening. I could not imagine going back to a place where I had a ceiling that I, I was bumping up against. So, yeah, that's what I've done is exactly what she was saying earlier. Yeah. I, th- I think it's a culture thing, mm-hmm. right? And you recognize it's it's in the air. You can smell it, right, as mm-hmm. soon as you're in, right? Yep. Um, so it's very important to when you go into a company to ask, hey, what is your culture, right? How do decisions get made, mm-hmm. right? Um how much voice do I have in the yep. role that I'm going to play? It's it's very important because uh, organizations are becoming more and more flat now. Mm-hmm. So everyone has a voice. Right. Um, and uh, we work on Slack, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a great way to democratize your thinking. Yep. Um, stuff like this is like invisible glue, but it makes a lot of difference on how you perform uh, in your specific jobs yeah absolutely i love slack yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some of the things that i i constantly try to remind myself is to ask better questions you know because mm-hmm. you only learn about these gatekeepers these ceiling marks by asking yourself and the rest of the groups you know better questions and really getting to the bottom of things right what are some questions that you guys think uh enables the shift from one area to uh, security, like engineering or uh, another aspect of product lifecycle or applications. You want to go first, or you you go on, Chris. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I I like to ask questions in two directions. I like to ask questions internally and then externally. So when I make any pivot, I ask myself, what skill do I have now that could be applied into what I'm pivoting into? So mm-hmm. I had Intel out the yin yang, but I didn't have that cybersecurity or commercial experience, but I knew that I could apply certain skills that I had to those spaces. And so while I was still trying to find my way in the commercial space, I had something to kind of lean on. And then the other thing is I like to ask people questions because I feel like people feel limited for some reason, especially if someone's like important or or sort of a celebrity. They're afraid to ask questions like, what did you do? What are the problems you ran into? I'm not that type of person. I immediately, you saw me this weekend. I went up to people. Bombarding with questions. Yeah, just bombarding (laughs) people with questions because they might be too busy. They might say, hey, I don't really have time to answer your question. And that's completely fine. I mean, people get busy. But more often than not, 
people answer the question. Yep. And they yep. actually give you good advice and it can change the trajectory of your career or your life. Absolutely. Yeah. And I I completely agree, right? To me, I learn by asking questions, right? So uh, I I can I can read the text. It's going to fall all over here, right? Mm-hmm. So if you see on my LinkedIn also is like I'm always curious. Uh, even in even in any uh, meetings that we used to have uh, in solid core and i used to be like called the always curious always questions <laughs> nilima um my my way of learning and remembering and processing uh, the information is by asking questions yep and also engaging people right so just the the concept of doing small talk mm-hmm. um and this is something that i wanted to kind of touch on right um In India we we are not used to doing a lot of small talk right, right? um this thing this skill i kind of developed after coming here and mm. it has helped me tremendously because uh questions not only help you answer it helps you engage mm-hmm. um and you learn a lot about people right so as you mentioned people are busy people are not it's not like people don't intentionally give answers right It's just that once you have started talking to them, it's a great way to engage, mm-hmm. and you get information, right? So much. Um, so much. Um, the other um, skill that you should develop when you are asking question is um, how do you ask questions, right? Because mm-hmm. there is there is a method to the madness, right? So if you are basically asking to learn. uh asking questions to learn you need to have a model in which you can start processing the questions and that has helped me tremendously in our user research as well right so um when we do our user research um there is a pattern we follow and it has uh, really helped us figure out how people use our product in 30 minutes uh more or less yeah How do you how do you define small talk because I'm not a small talk <laughs> person but when I think of small talk I think of like oh pleasant weather today how is how is little jim doing on his <laughs> t-ball team like i mean like do people really like care about like that topic or are they just making conversation like cuz i'm not a small talk person but i will make conversation that is impactful right um i define small talk as i want to know what what you are like how you are chris right, right. like what ticks you right yeah. uh, how you feeling today mm-hmm. for example right, right? Mm-hmm. because i care i'm going to spend my next hour with you yeah. right so i it's great to know about your family and right. um because it does help you help me connect to you as a person yeah and as i mentioned i've been following some of your um, earlier um, sessions as well and i was like i'm curious to know how chris is as person yeah. right right um which is what i do when i meet ron and as well it's not mm-hmm. i see him very less but i can instantly connect because right. we've been working together and i care what's happening in his life versus like he asking me as well right, right. so yep. so these are small small things um i don't do small talk just to start the conversation but because i want to know what's happening for to you as a person yeah, yes no, curiosity I, i can do that small talk because mm-hmm. i love getting to know people like <laughs> I, i actually care about how they feel but it's like the the very superficial small mm-hmm. talk that doesn't yes. really mean anything i, I can't do at yep. all i again i i also don't do that yep. I, only when i really want to connect to a person for 
then um, that's something I really care about. Absolutely. Um, that's the best way, I think, to asking better questions. That's like the gateway is to understanding the person, you know, right. you, you, you start to learn which questions are appropriate and when. Mm-hmm. Maybe that person has limited time, you know, you don't want to ask too deep of a question at that point. Right. Also, people are very smart. Yeah. Right. They know when you are being superficial. Absolutely. It's, it's, we are humans, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, y- if you don't care about it, uh, people will not engage. Exactly. Right? So, you need to do small talk with a purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about you? I know you journal yeah. a lot. You journal every day. Yes. Uh, you ask yourself questions. You ask questions of others. I think you are a black belt in <laughs> question asking. <laughs> How do you ask good questions? So, that's... That's a good question. (laughs) That's the first question I ask myself is how do I answer this? Um, But I think that it really boils down to uh, wanting to know information. Mm -hmm. If you have the desire to know the answer, then you could ask a really well-formed question. So a lot of the times when I want to get to know someone, then I'll ask them, like, maybe what is the highlight of something that they're working on? Or what's something that you just had a success in because... I love winning. So right. I want to know how have you been winning? You know, yep. maybe I can mm-hmm. uh, genius always leaves clues. So yeah. maybe I can get a clue here and there. If it's product related or uh, work related, cybersecurity related, it, my questions are always geared towards a domain of my interest. Right. So if I want to know more about how can I architect something and uh, for a customer or, or an organization, then I'll get really curious about what's already there. Like, you know, what are my Legos looking like? How can I use these building blocks to create something, you know, really amazing or get the information that I'm like desiring to know. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, just as you guys were already saying, like getting curious and getting excited about whatever the topic is. Yeah. Outstanding. Outstanding. Yep. Yes. Uh, Questions always lead to uh, answers, and I think that we need answers to do our jobs. You guys, like I was just saying before the podcast, the queen and king of getting (laughs) requirements. So how does questions and tie back into getting requirements for customers or for your organization? You start. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... Questions are a way in for me, like, so when, when we define, let's say we define something that we have to do, right? Uh, questions uh, are a way for me to actually concretize the requirements because mm-hmm. in general, we have already written some assumptions after doing market study, spa- you know, product study, um, user study as well, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's all theoretical information, right? Where the rubber meets the road is when you start basically validating those requirements. And that is where questions really help you. Mm-hmm. It also, it's very, very important to work in communities. So in security, we are very, very lucky, super lucky. We have amazing communities. Uh, we have a very good community for our product. There are some other communities like BreakSec, mm-hmm. etc., yeah. which are amazing right you run a very active community as well Ron, yep. right um so i have actually leveraged these communities a lot to ask questions um to validate my requirements because that is where actual practitioners are that yep. is where they are throwing eggs on the products or something that they don't work and as a product person it's it's an it's a mine 
of information, right? Um, I also use the Slack, uh, R Slack community to actually engage with end users. Um, and we ask them questions publicly, right? right. Yep. Uh, it's not only one-on-one. -on -one. You you do want to kind of get a sense of, hey, three people are going to jump in, and this is why I love Slack, right? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that's the uh, I think that's the one way of asking questions to kind of concretize the requirements. The other iteration after that we do is once we have actually mocked the feature after that person actually gave us the feedback, we mm. show them and then we ask them questions because. When you actually see stuff in front of your eyes, um, a lot of times what you were thinking in the mind completely changes. Right. Yep. Which is the other thing we do. Absolutely, right? absolutely. I've actually never talked about requirements on the show. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I, I bring it up almost every time. Well, Nalima brought up a very good point. You know, we talked about getting requirements, but then validating them. Right. That's a whole other topic in itself, right? Oh, absolutely. And even before validation of the requirement, Sometimes you run into stakeholders that don't know what their requirements would be. And so what I, I, I'm pretty much a, a philosophy major from, from school. And the Socratic method is the structure of asking questions in order to push thought. Mm. And so you can start to ask questions asking, what is the purpose of your team or your function? And so they say, oh, I do this, 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 and this. Like, how do you define this? Like, what is that? And so, like, oh, so how would you protect that? Like, or wh what are some of the things that could happen to that thing that would affect your function? And then as you kind of go along, they actually define the requirements right there on the spot, mm. which is really, really awesome and powerful. Yeah. And yep. so when you're actually validating, you're validating on the spot. Also, once you have requirements whether they got uh had them already or once you sort of tease that out of the the stakeholder you actually look and see from other perspectives like these are the requirements that this team has what do you guys think about that and like oh i don't, I don't know if that's quite right and you can actually take that feedback to that team and say hey uh, we heard from other people that you know maybe we should tweak this well, what are your thoughts on that so you can actually crowdsource the validation of requirements yep 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 very that that's kind of my strategy also mm -hmm. uh working with you know stakeholders or uh, management any type of capacity you'll get certain requirements and you bring that to whoever's going to actually be implementing or engineering or an, analyzing that data might have a whole different set of beliefs on those requirements so getting them validated kind of the crowdsource way or any type of way is what i think is most successful but unfortunately but a lot of the times it you learn that after the fact yeah. after the implementation right <laughs> yeah absolutely and that's part of the product cycle sometimes yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't know what you don't know at that time mm -hmm. yeah yeah yep. you also touched on feedback there for a moment uh what are some of your biggest key points when it comes to people actually getting feedback from clients or customers um that is again a very interesting question right so um, and I would attribute a lot of that I've learned from our UX designer, um, uh, Ido, right? Mm -hmm. um, there are, the wisdom of crowds sometimes does not work for feedback. Right. Right. Um, so uh, we've had situations where we have had three people in the room, all three with conflicting answers for the same feedback, and mm -hmm. it's very difficult to kind of align. So right. uh, for 
in my first year of learning what we have learned is for certain kind of questions it's always good to take feedback one on one right and then there are scenarios where wisdom of crowds work right um honestly in real one on like in real time conversations it is a huge skill to get any kind of feedback from a number of people mm-hmm. you need moderation uh, you need to have a very set script it cannot be a discovery session right right if you want a discovery and validating session do it one on ones right um but if you're crowdsourcing ideas then you need to moderate have a script and you would get a lot of ideas now in terms of the feedback the other thing that has already always helped us and as i said like even if you have something concrete to show that kind of starts spinning a lot of ideas from a feedback perspective right mm-hmm. so we do these two or at least two to three iterations with our customers who are willing to kind of uh, give us feedback one is we will ask them stuff then in the second iteration we actually show them stuff and a lot of times 90% of the feedback completely changes mm-hmm. right um and then the third scenario that has always happened is so many times we don't know how to give a solution for a certain problem mm-hmm. um and i kind of turn around and ask practitioners what would you do in right. this right uh, one it helps them empathize with our uh like thinking process we because now they are at the hook to give the solution right mm-hmm. um and two sometimes uh actually all the times most of the times we get amazing responses uh, at that time so feedback again leads back to discovery of next set of things absolutely right. Right. perfect mm-hmm. well yeah. said mm-hmm. absolutely i agree uh the last question and point that i wanted to touch on a bit was uh we just talked about requirements uh let's talk about how uh organizations and stakeholders are receptive to uh products and also new solutions internal or buying them mm-hmm. um what do you what do you, what are your thoughts you know you're uh i'm sure pitched a lot about all these products yep. we don't have to get into the specifics right. but do you think that there are times where you're completely non receptive to vendors or do you find yourself more receptive yeah honestly it it's tough i find that i i do get pitched on a, a daily basis or at least like sort of like that that cold pitch like on linkedin or email oh. and a lot of times i'm just so busy i don't have time to wrap my brain around an additional solution but sometimes they are slick and i actually appreciate when they're slick they they start by just saying hey love the stuff you're doing blah mm-hmm. blah, blah blah just want to stay in touch that's great then they come back with like a joke and it like has me like dying laughing and they're like would you like to get a cup of coffee i say absolutely let's get a cup of coffee uh but okay. from a solution standpoint i think i'm going to take a page out of nilima's book and actually start paying more attention to these vendors and solutions i i've been pretty generous when it comes to actually like giving people time to to pitch for for my role but also i think i need to do a little bit more i think i need to start paying more attention to what because there might be something out there that might be a game changer. Mm-hmm. You just never know. I think mm-hmm. what kind of tainted me is that there's I've seen so many terrible products that I'm just like in my brain there's like a calculus. What are the odds that this like vendor or this application is actually going to do what they say yeah. it's going to yeah. do in a pitch? And it's pretty low in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's getting better that 
those sort of snake oil companies are getting weeded out and the actual champions are here to stay. Yeah. One recommendation there, ask them to send you a five-minute product, one use case, right? right? Mm -hmm. Before you engage. Yeah. And at that point, you know, is it snake oil or is it real? Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, and that's, uh, that's what I do. You like in the websites, if you go, just go data sheets and everything, you just don't know what the product is. Right. Uh, if a company has even five minutes of actual product demo, mm -hmm. they're worth talking to. Right. right. Um, so that's, and that's how we kind of did a demisto as well, because let the product do the talking mm -hmm. and Absolutely. then everyone will follow. Yeah. So uh, five minutes, like, is this a, a pre-canned five min minutes that they have? Or is this like actually setting aside a time for them to actually demo the, the product? Whichever. So just ask them either they have a pre-recorded mm -hmm. five minute actual product video, not right. a marketing pitch. Right. Or they spend 15 minutes with you where 10 minutes they are showing the product. Mm -hmm. Right. And as soon as that's there then it will pique your interest, right? right. Um, and then uh, it's up to you to follow. But th those 15 minutes would be really beneficial for the vendor as well because mm -hmm. a lot of the fledgling startups are looking for validation from folks like you, right. Chris. So it makes a lot of difference. And one thing I did want to ask you uh, on top of that is I, I, I have a habit, and I don't know if it's a bad habit or not, but whenever someone comes in to pitch, I'm like so overrun with like pitches that I'm like, look, I know you might have sales slides and marketing slides. Yeah. Can we just get to the product? Yes. Is that a good practice or am I being short-sighted? Um, so the five minutes of those 15 minutes, they should be able to explain what problem they are solving because right. if you don't have that context, yep. then the product demo will not really help. But right. Really, if you can't explain the problem in five to ten minutes, then it I don't know if it will hold your interest. Right. It yeah. won't hold my interest. Yeah, yeah I right. think my, my so. problem is like 30 minutes of an hour-long session and it's all like marketing slides. It's mm -hmm. like, can we just get to the time? Like, we're waiting for you to respond for validation. <laughs> <laughs> Where is the product? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, we will make it right after you validate these ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Awesome. Great. Well, this has been uh, a great conversation. Outstanding. Uh, I'm excited for part two where yeah. we might do a three-part series on uh, just some more information that you have. Nice. One of the questions that I always end with is, what is a great way for people to get in contact with you or stay in touch with you? Oh, that is a new question. I So uh, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm there. Um, and... Uh, my email ID is firstname.lastname at gmail. Mm -hmm. So okay. please uh, feel free to drop me an email in case you have any product questions. Uh, women transitioning into security, women transitioning into PM, always happy to help. Yes, Nalima uh, is a capacity. great wealth of knowledge and an amazing mentor. So uh, I will be sure to add all of that into the show notes. Excellent. Thank you so much, Nalima. Thank this you. has been a great, great episode. Same yes. here. Awesome. Thank you guys for inviting me. All right. See you guys next time.